you can look back at moments where it is just absolutely clear that trying to, to, to level the playing field, trying to be more equitable, try, trying to have a system that's fairer has literally benefited everyone, you know, including segments of the white population. So once you understand these kinds of historical moments, um, we should be able to look at the present through the same kind of prism and think, you know, that it's not just about fighting over the existing pie. We can just make bigger pies. Welcome to Voices of Victors, a podcast that asks thought-provoking questions, cultivates culturally relevant dialogue, and reveals truths about our shared human experience through discussions with diverse members of the University of Michigan community, ranging from alumni and faculty to students and staff. This podcast is brought to you by the Alumni Association of the University of Michigan. I'm your host, James McRae. I'm a 1997 alum of the University of Michigan, and I've been with the Alumni Association for over 20 years, working in various roles, including student engagement and Camp Michigania. Now, I'm excited to welcome you on this podcast journey. Our theme for season two of Voices of Victors is diversity, equity, inclusion, and justice. From examining the inequities of climate change and paid family leave to discussing authentic allyship, we'll be sharing stories and hearing from experts from the U of M community. On today's episode, we ask, what is authentic allyship? Systemic racism is a part of America's history, from structural injustices like redlining to microaggressions so slight that many white people are unaware of the offense. Confronting the reality of our country's history can feel uncomfortable, and yet it is far past due. How can we be authentic allies to people of color? How do we change the status quo? We've heard we need to be anti-racist, but what does that look like in practice? Today, we discuss what it means to be an ally to people of color, performative allyship, and ways we can think more creatively about deconstructing systemic racism and building community. I'd like to introduce today's guests, Professor Angela Dillard and Dr. Deborah Willis. Debbie is a graduate of U of M. She earned a master's in sociology in 1993 and her PhD in the same field in 2007. She developed and leads the DEI certificate program at Rackham Graduate School at U of M. She's also the assistant director for the professional development and engagement team at Rackham. Angela is also a graduate of U of M. She earned a master's in American culture in 1992 and a PhD in 1995. She's a professor who has appointments in the U of M Department of Afro-American and African Studies, History, and the Residential College. She is also the chair of the U of M Department of History. In the past, she's been the Associate Dean for Undergraduate Education for LSA, and in that capacity, helped to draft and implement the college's DEI program. Welcome. We're very happy to speak with you both today. Thank you for joining us. We're going to start really light here and say, what is performative allyship? So I'll take a stab at, at that. Um, you know, I think we should also at some point talk about you know, what we really mean by allyship. Um, but the performative aspect, so people often say that as if it's a bad thing. Um, so performative or symbolic, you know, those sorts of things. And I, I want to say that I'm, I'm not so quick you know, to, to just sort of dunk on that, you know, as, as a concept, right? So the black square, right? Because you stand in um, solidarity with Black Lives Matters or taking a knee, right? At, at a courthouse during a protest. Um, I think these sorts of things are important. 
I mean, I think symbols are important. Performances are important. I mean, I think that these can send a message that you can, you know, feel that you are at least standing in some level of solidarity um, with a cause by having a black square, you know, on your Twitter feed. Let, you know, I don't think you should make it more than it is. Um, you know, it is just symbolic. It is a low level thing that can be done, but we, we, we live by our symbols. You know, I mean, I think, that a symbolic or a performative identification or gesture towards allyship can set the groundwork, you know, for a much more sustained form of engagement. So I'm, I'm kind of all for the symbols at some level. And I think what you're saying, I, what I heard you say is performative, the word itself has a little bit of a negative connotation to it, right? And so when you say performative, it makes it seem like we're saying you're doing something not right in this situation. That's right. Okay, so are there any levels of performative allyship that you think are um, do have that negative connotation or are not the best for people to do? Well, I think it's like, you know, like, like any concert goer knows there are good performances and there are bad performances. I mean, I do think that there are ways of performing badly. Um, but but the knots, right, that's a judgment about um you know, what's in your heart? What's your level of sincerity? Was this just silly on its face, this thing that, that, that you've done, you know, in, in a performative vein? Um, so I think that that can be a separate question. But I think, you know, the place to start is to say that, that, not, that calling something performative shouldn't be ipso facto seen as something that's negative without then asking some other questions about why this was done, what was actually done, and what the impact may have been. Yeah, Angela, I really appreciate you starting with that um, about the tone around the word performative. I appreciate that. I think, um, and to be an ally, you're really trying to be an advocate for a group that you're not a part of. And I feel like a lot of people are on a continuum or a spectrum of where they are and I think it's great to meet them where they are. So those symbols are important. Those, those symbols are important. And if that's where they're starting, I think the negative connotation that comes with it is that if the, um, if the goal or the impact is just a focus on you or something that you're doing, that you're, you know, so you're not really elevating the voices or the group that you're trying to be an ally to. It's just that you're you're saying, look at me, this is what I'm doing. And so I should be rewarded for this or look at me. So I think um, thinking of it both ways is really important, right? And so thinking about being a true ally is really an action word. And so while you may start with a hashtag or a black box, like what's behind that? What are you doing in addition to that? How are you really questioning yourself to think, how are you truly being an advocate for this group that you're trying to be an ally for. A lot of times when we think of things like social media, you know, you mentioned the posting the black box on your Instagram account or your Facebook. A lot of times those posts on social media, that in itself has the connotation that, you know, you're doing this for you, like you're trying to bring more promotion to yourself. So how do you think today's digital world, like where we're living, how does the, how does allyship show up there and, Again, using that more negative tone of performative allyship, do you feel like it has been influenced by this digital landscape that we have? 
I do. This is such an interesting question to me. I, I can't wait to hear what um, Deborah has to say about this. Uh, so I, you know, so political theorists sometimes talk about biopower, um, or you know that you can sort of think about it as a power of crowds. Um, so you know that that's the feeling that you get when you watch um, the March on Washington, right? And and they always do that scene where they pan. And you see all of those people together, right? Or, you know, the, the, the women's march um, after the Trump election or, you know, these or summer of 2020. I mean, just seeing all of these people out on the streets together. And that one had the extra impact, right, of, of a pandemic in which people had been on lockdown, right? So those crowd scenes, I think, were, you know, really arresting. I think there's a social media version of this. And mm -hmm. I think this is where those those black squares matter. Seeing all of those squares together, I think approximates some of this biopower, right? So that you feel that you're part of a collective that you can, the only way you can see it is through a hashtag or through, you know, something like that, that symbol of the square. I mean, I don't know what else would produce that sense of solidarity, that 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 collectivity. So yes, you know, you've got like the square on your Insta. That's about you. But once you have thousands of squares, I think that becomes something else. That that is this kind of. I don't know if I would call it allyship, but I do think it says something about solidarity and the power of crowds. I don't know how else you would get that feeling on social media. And I think that there have been instances where this has been enormously effective for people, the Arab Spring and those hashtags or closer to home here on our own campus, BBUM, being black at UM, which was a hashtag that you could follow and then tweet after tweet, have a kind of ethnographic understanding of what life was like for black students on this campus. So again, enormously effective mechanism um, for all kinds of things that might lead towards an effective form of allyship. And it's not lost on me too, when you said the black squares, during that time we were in the middle of a global pandemic where a lot of people weren't leaving home. So you're not gonna see, even though we did have, you know, um, things that were happening in the streets, but for a good majority of people who weren't leaving their houses, that just isn't lost on me in this moment. So thank you. And Debbie, I, I want to go back to, because you said, you know, make it's uh, important that you don't make it about yourself. Do you think there are ways that we can spot that when, when it is about the person and not about the cause? A lot of times that's done unintentionally, actually. I love what Angela said about just the scope, being able to reach so many more people. Like that's the good thing about social media is that we would not have, a lot of people would not have even, it, it raises awareness in a way that I think is incredible. And it also can build community in a way that I think that is awesome. So even if the person may be saying, oh, look, this is what I did, it's about me. I'm not necessarily talking about the black boxes, but like kind of the you know, I did this today. Is this is this about you or is it about the group that you're trying to? And I, I think what social media does is allows you to 
increase your awareness. You don't have to be intentional about it, but increases awareness about your intention and the impact that you may have. So what are you intending to say? And what are you really saying? And take a moment to really reflect on that. And my, my thing that I say to students all the time is like, hashtag, it's not about you, right? So if this is about you and what you want people to see you're doing, then you have to really think and question <laughs> where your allyship is. But I think even just having the opportunity to do that. So we know social media, also we have these algorithms and all of this that now they promote certain negative things or arguments um, we've seen that happen being played out in the media. So in that way, it can have a opposite effect, but the, the idea of doing this on social media in and of itself is not bad. It's how people use it one way or the other. And so when we think about individuals and what our companies are doing to, to kind of perpetuate, you can perpetuate very good things or bad things. And so we have to think about kind of systemically what's happening behind all of this. And really, I try to focus on the individuals coming together as a community. You can build community in a way that you couldn't before. And people are really trying to be a part of something. And I think to embrace that is one way to go about it, but you have to be intentional. I agree. I'm just pulling out my hand clap emoji <laughs> and all that, right? I mean, it's just a square. Don't make too much, don't take too much credit for it, right? Have some perspective, you know, I mean, you know, sort of think a little bit more about that. Mm -hmm. Or, um, you know, during uh, the, the summer of 2020, um, I was driving, I won't tell you what area I was driving in because I don't want to insult anyone. But um, I was driving down the street. Um, it, I wasn't driving at home in Detroit. Let's just put it that way. Um, so I was driving and uh, came across a BLM car wash. And I, have to, I had to stop, you know, and just have a conversation <laughs> about what is that? What are you all doing? You know, and why, why are you using BLM in this way? You know, um, you know not, not being rude. Um, okay, maybe I was being a little rude, but not, you know, trying not to be rude, trying to be kind of in an engagement road mode in which you lead with curiosity and some questions about this. Um, and, you know, we ended up having a really interesting conversation about it. I, I don't know if they changed their minds. They certainly didn't change my mind about whether or not this was appropriate um, and, and whether or not this was a kind of moment of allyship or, you know, support or solidarity with this was such an important cause for so many people in the world. Um, but I, you know, I felt that it was at least worth a conversation. Well, first, wow. Um, <laughs> and um, I would say that what I'm hearing from you, though, is is really challenging people to have some individual responsibility and really think about what they're doing before they do it. Um, but I think what else I'm hearing is kind of... Um, just being aware of, of like the car wash situation, like, you know, well, what is the purpose of this? Like, how does this relate to the cause? And that's a way you can really identify, like, if it's very obvious that it doesn't relate to the purpose of this cause, then I, I love what you said, lead with curiosity, but that's, mm -hmm. that's where you can question. Yeah, I love the leading with curiosity. It's so true. And I've had the opportunity to do this so much more now for that car wash it's like you're right the intention was it for you to get more customers because you feel that if you say blm um 
people that are in the Black Lives Music movement are more likely to come. So what what is your, are you giving money or proceeds from your car washes to be a LM? Like, how are you using this? And really thinking, having them think about that, right? So I love the questions because it actually makes people reflect. No matter how they respond to me, they have reflected a little bit. And I also ask, um, how you see this might be, you know, can I offer a different perspective on how this might come across, right? Because you may really be ignorant, not in a negative way, but to the fact um, you haven't thought about this additional perspective. And oftentimes people are like, huh, never really thought about that. And, you know, just having you reflect, is it about you getting more money for your business? Let's, you know, let's think about that, right? Let's think about that. So I love um, leading with curiosity and I love the, the challenge of the responsibility I feel that I have, even when it's uncomfortable, because sometimes it's comfortable and funny, like <laughs> Angela, like I could see me saying, dude, come on, right? Like what, you know, so that's kind of fun, but sometimes it's uncomfortable to ask the questions, like mm-hmm. what's really going on here in our workplaces, mm-hmm. in our friendships? Like, what's really behind this? Can I offer a different perspective? Have you thought about how this might land with people in the Black Lives music um, movement? Have you thought about, et cetera? So, I, again, I don't want to dwell on the negative con- connotation of performative allyship, but there are different terms out there, right? There's performative allyship and there's authentic allyship. So how would you define or what would you say is authentic allyship? I know that's a big question. Yeah, we're going to throw that one first to uh, Deborah. <laughs> yeah. Because you know, I know that I, you really have thought quite a bit about, you know, what it means to put authentic in front of allyship. Yeah. And I think that's going to be very different for each individual. And I think sometimes we have a definition of what authentic allyship is. And we, we put that definition on everybody else. Like there's a thing, like you can arrive. This is it. And it's, And it's not it, right? Authentic allyship will be different based on not only context, the person, or even for one person, authentic allyship for me, for um, this group may be totally different than it is from this group, right? So it's just my, my thought is that I am trying to be an advocate for a group that I don't belong to. I want to elevate their voices and elevate their perspective. And that usually takes some action. Um, How am I supporting you? And I ask, how best can I support you in this moment? Sometimes that means me taking the lead. Sometimes that's me taking a back seat. That's sometimes me in the background doing whatever you need me to do. And sometimes that's me saying, I need the mic to, to elevate their perspective. So I think just thinking about it not being one specific type of thing um, and not throwing that on everyone else. So authentic allyship for a white female may be totally different than what it is for me. And it doesn't mean it's bad or good. Like we're all on this continuum and I really want to stress that continuum throughout uh, because other than that, anything anybody does can be read as either authentic or not by me. So I feel like, sometimes I wonder if I set the bar too high. So when I think of, you know, kind of somebody being an authentic ally, um, 
I mean, so I'm, I'm a sci-fi fan. Um, and anybody who knows me knows that I, I love, right, science fiction. And I think, you know, p- part of, there are always these moments, right, where there's a, there's the battle scene and they're flying through space. I mean, this doesn't have to be science fiction. This could be, you know, this could be, you know, this could be Top Gun or, you know, things like in, in that genre where there's the person, there's a person flying in the, the front position. And then there's a person near them that says, I have your back, you know, that, and that, and that the person flying in that front position, um, you know, which could be a position of vulnerability, could be, you know, some sort of risk or danger, you know, kind of gets to hear through the, the, the headphones. I've got your back. I'm on your six. You know, this kind of like I'm there for you. You're not kind of flying into this situation alone, you know, which is not to say that I think an ally has to sort of somehow put their own well-being or safety at, at, at peril. But the ability to say that to someone else and then to, to be able to hear that from someone who that you do think really does have your six mm-hmm. seems to me to be kind of an, an ideal version of, of allyship, which is not to say, again, that we always have to get to that ideal version, but it's the way that I think about it. And I always think, wow, is that just too freighted? Is that, you know, when people hear that and go, maybe allyship isn't for me, you know? And so would that be overly discouraging? No, I love that you said you're a sci-fi fan because I also am a very big sci-fi fan. But using the Top Gun analogy, it, it again, if, I, if you allow me to sum up a little bit, it sounds like you're saying that authentic allyship to you is, is being a really good wingman. Or ring woman. Or- or ring woman. <laughs> I was just using the Top Gun analogy. <laughs> top Gun analogy. I was quoting yes, Top Gun. Yes. Yeah. You know, and that should be remade with women, by the way. Yes. I mean, I really, I want to see that movie. <laughs> it'll have to, it'll come after the sequel that's supposed to come out this year. Okay. So, how about um and bear with me. This is a long question. Uh but sometimes white people feel a little threatened when the topic of racism is brought up. Um a lot of times that's because they're afraid of something being taken away from them. Um, when I think in reality, the playing field has never ever been level from the start. So what we're really seeking is, is to raise the floor so that all people may start from the same place. Not everyone gets this. So how do we help those who don't see why and how uh, things are so imbalanced? And you know whose responsibility is it to educate in that way? It's a good question. You know, I'm a, I'm a historian by both um, training and just inclination to sort of think about things historically. And I think that this is one area where I really regret um, the, the kind of lack of a historical consciousness that's, that's often really pervasive um, in, in, inside of the, the uh, uh, United States. Because I think that, you know, if you can look back at moments where it is just absolutely clear that trying to, to, to level the playing field, trying to be more equitable, try, trying to have a system that's fairer has literally benefited everyone, um, you know, including segments of the white population. So for instance, the, the way that people used to get admitted to college it was just the hookup. It's your family is wealthy. Of course, you know, you're going to gain admittance into certain kinds of institutions. Um, And as much as people bemoan the coming of affirmative action, 
the clear thing that affirmative action did was to regularize admissions, to make it fairer, to make it more transparent. Um, so many people benefited from the, the kinds of changes that were forced by um, first African Americans trying to desegregate institutions. Um, you know, often putting their own bodies on the line or through court cases, and then to try and continue that process through the mechanism of affirmative action. The broad societal benefits from this just could not be clearer. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, once you understand these kinds of historical moments, um, we should be able to look at the present through the same kind of prism and think, you know, that it's not just about fighting over the existing pie. We can just make bigger pies. And we've done that historically. Yeah, I love the focus on history. Um, I think, I love, um, Heather McGee now has a book out called The Sum of Us. Mm -hmm. And I think it it was so helpful to people to think about the historical context and this fear, this myth we have of the zero sum myth that what is whatever is gained by one side is lost by another. And there and there's this fear there. And so of course people are thinking, oh, if something's being taken away, if something somebody's getting something, then something's being taken away from me. But like Angela said, like it's not all about this one pie, right? It's so I think education is gonna be the most helpful for that. And somehow trying to educate people more on the history. Um, and I think some people we won't get, right? Some people are convinced <laughs> that, you know, they believe the zero sum thing. And some people will literally, to stop certain marginalized groups from getting something, will literally suffer themselves. And so she talks about this a lot in the book, but the, the thing that the, what's most compelling to me is the filling of the swimming pools. So instead of these swimming pools being integrated, white white people wanted the pool to be literally filled with concrete so that black kids couldn't get in the pool but it also meant their kids couldn't get in the pool so and it's and it's and that is a drastic kind of um example but it's so many examples like this like Angela saying around education around housing around you know so many things so I think just trying to educate people in a way that they're, they have all of these fears. They're being bombarded with this kind of zero-sum myth and trying to really educate people around that and bring the people um, moving along the continuum that will come. Some won't come. So your, your, your question is, whose responsibility is that? And I think, each, I think it's all of our responsibility, honestly. Um, and I think we have to think about how much of that we want to do on a daily basis. Because I do think uh, those of us who are social activists can also say, I can't, or, you know, I need a break from this or something. But I think um, it is, I feel like it's my responsibility. And I'm hoping that we can share this responsibility among widely, <laughs> but also don't feel like you have to do it. Because I think then it becomes just this overburden um, and what social activists feel a lot. It's a shared responsibility to get everyone educated to make some bigger pies. I love that. I love it. So in your expert opinions, what are some examples of how people can can take action to not only be not racist, but to be anti-racist in a meaningful way? I'm going to defer 
to Deborah on this one too. Yeah, she has to say, you know, because I've been thinking a lot about, you know, what what's this difference between being non-racist, which would be nice enough, and then being anti-racist. <laughs> kind of where does that where does one kind of slosh into the other, and kind of you know how do we think about that? So I'm often a little perplexed about this myself. So <laughs> yeah, I like um, Angela. Once again, you're bringing up this whole focus we have on words and meanings and I'm like whatever word works for you let's let's what word I, I mean honestly I will say to someone what word works with you what resonates with you and then we're going to move from there I'm not arguing with you over you know what this means and what this means but I think what it is is really all about action mm-hmm. um what how who can I bring along the continuum in what way so I think um, there's so many examples, but it's going to be so different for each individual who are actually the social activists and what they're comfortable with and the labor that they're willing to put in on whatever the topic is around racism or which racism um, I think is important. But like thinking of all things from the social media, if you're an influencer and I can have you put this on and now I have a connection to this massive number of people. If that's if that's one way, if that's an action, I'll do this all the way to, you know, if you have X amount of dollars, no time, but you have X amount of dollars, I could easily help you <laughs> and navigate where those dollars should go. Just trying to figure out where you are and where you're willing to go. And I'm willing to take you where I, wherever you're willing to go. Um, I feel in my responsibility, I get energy from that and just trying to connect the dots and see who's what and where, connect people, et cetera. But I think some form of action, like what are you doing, <laughs> doing? Um, because for us to say we're an ally, you don't, you don't self-declare yourself an ally. It's really like the person that you're trying to be an ally for, they're going to determine whether you're an ally or not, right? <laughs> like you can't just be like, hey, I'm an ally. So I think, I think just action, focusing on action. And I really think about different things for different people, depending on where they are. It's interesting because I think uh, a lot of times in situations like this, we're looking for the capital T-H-E answer. And what I'm hearing you say is there, there is no one size fits all to allyship. There, it's, it's different for each person. Um, and starting with what you're willing and what you're able to do. And I love that because I, I think I will use that in my personal life when trying to help friends along the way. So thank you for that. Angela, anything you wanted to add to that one? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, um, so there's allyship, right, and all of its complexity. But then there's a, an allyship that takes the form of um, anti-racism as a project, right? Um, you know, which seems to me, it's you know, especially kind of riffing off of Deborah that, you know, has to be something about an, an active involvement to seek real and meaningful change, right? So structural changes, um, things like, you know, it matters who's, who's sitting in a room at the table when certain kinds of decisions are being made, right? And so that some anti-racist project might be recognizing what it means for you to be sitting at a table 
when, you know, crucial decisions that are going to have a ripple effect um, and, and, you know, kind of touch people's lives, you know, in really deep ways, that you need to be able to kind of have the courage, right, to, to say, I, I think what that person just suggested, you know, is kind of a BS way of looking at it. I think we can do better, right? I mean, so those kinds of moments. Um, I, I think, you know, trying to, to change social structures is just such an immense thing to, to try and think about how to do so that it would be everything from from those where you're, you're trying to change policy you're trying to change you know how these things play out to affect people down to just conversations that maybe you're willing to have with um family around the table or you know i mean so i think some of it can be changing structures i think some of it can be changing the conversation mm-hmm. you know just let's just say that some things are just not appropriate, um, you know, not to be canceling, you know, your uncle or anything like that, but to just say, you know, this is not, maybe we can think about this in a different way. And maybe the way that we talk about these things, you know, has an impact in, in ways that we shouldn't be quite so comfortable with. I mean, so I think I'm always, I always, I feel like I stumble a lot over just all of the possibilities of the ways that, you know, people can take these sorts of actions, you know, and that for me, they kind of all tumble together, um, you know, and and often kind of just confuses me then about, you know, how, where are we setting the bars? How are we drawing lines? You know, how are we making these kinds of terms and practices meaningful? Yeah, I appreciate you bringing that up because I think that's how a lot of people feel. And I think once you get to the point of, um, so folks like you and I, the confusion doesn't mean shut down, right? But for some people, the confusion just means shut down. I don't know. I can't win. It's too much. I can't think. Or um, So it actually energizes me to figure out like, you know, like, okay, you're a CEO. So Um, your company wrote this. So what are you doing next? Like, here's your responsibility as a person, like you were saying, who's, who, where are the seats at the table? Um, What are you doing to work, actively work towards equity? And, you know, what, what are your demonstrated (laughs) commitments? And so just asking these questions, because some people think, oh, I can write the statement and then, yay, you know, I'm done. But what, what's coming after the statement? And so you have power in a way that I don't. So let, let's think about how you could use that power or privilege, we'll say, because people have, you know, issues with power as well. But reality is you can do some things that I can. And then, you know, even working all the way on the other continuum as students, you also can do some things that I can't, right? As an employee or as a staff person, some things I can't do, but you can do as well. So let's see how we can use that. Um, in terms of how to fight. So yeah, I think you're right. Fighting the system, fighting individuals, fighting structures. Like, where do you want to fit? Like, I will find somewhere. (laughs) I will pull that out of you um, if you want to move towards anti-racist policies, anti-racism, how to be an anti-racist. Let's think about all the ways. And I think when you do that with people, they're more likely to join or not get confused or not get shut down or not let fear stop them from being. I mean, people fear social media. They fear the news. That's the one thing I think we haven't talked about in terms of social media. Um, it used to be, you know, 
I don't know, like you can just become really famous really quickly in a way that you don't want to become famous because of social media now. That's a real fear. And so it really shuts people down. And I think that is one of the kind of negative connotations where uh, we didn't have that before. I think, you know, I've never really kind of thought about it quite this way before about listening to you. I mean, I think part of it might be that you, that what you need is a plan, a well-informed plan mm-hmm. that, you know, understands the landscape, understands organizational hierarchies, understands your potential based on who you are, where you are, what kinds of privileges you bring to the table. Um, and then to kind of be able to step back and say, I want to be an anti-racist and I want to have some impact. What are the ways that I can do that? And then including what's your risk tolerance? Exactly. You know, how, you know how, what are you comfortable with? If you're going to be on social media, you need to, you know, you need to have kind of a high tolerance, right? Um, so, I mean, I think that that's, you know, uh, that's a really interesting way of thinking about it. You know, and that might look different when you're, you know, a college sophomore than when you're going for your MBA or, you know, you're a Michigan alum and you get Mm -hmm. to throw that weight around or, you know, you're a CEO or a college president, right? That at every stage, you could kind of constantly be reevaluating this plan. I think I might need to do a little bit more thinking about my plan too. So (laughs) so I'm I'm taking this in to apply it, you know, to to some of my own thinking about what what I can and, and can't do you know, as a department chair, you know, right now. No, that is amazing. Thank you. Thank you. So I'm, I'm going to switch gears a little bit here. Um, you mentioned earlier, Angela, I think we've bonded over being sci-fi fans, uh, but I'm, I'm a huge movie fan as well. Um, all types of movies. And there's a trope in movies called the white savior trope. Um, have you heard of the white savior complex? And, and if so, how would you explain what that is? Yeah, there are so many movies, right, where you can see this in action, and it is just so wrong. I mean, it is just terrible, right? Um, And I think, you know, I I think, well, well, let me start with something positive, because I think in these conversations, you do want to start with something positive. I think now that we understand this white savior problem more than we have in the past is a really important step forward for us socially, you know, that, that we have a trope now that we can talk about. It used to just be the movie, right? I mean, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't something that might tell us, you know, um, you know, something important about how we structured um, our society and assumptions about who can do what, Um, you know, who has to be the sidekick, who has to be in the red shirt where, you know, that, you know, that person's not going to live to the entire movie. (laughs) I remember growing up, you know, seeing some of the first movies where the black, hero got to live to the end of the movie and that this was widely discussed you know and and talked about because it was so different so i think some of it is acknowledging that you know we've we've come some distance from that um but i think we really need to be careful when we think about parachuting in to save other people um and what it means to take up that amount of space that, you know, sometimes you, you step up by stepping back. Um, again, another great example from the, the um, post-World War II civil rights movement in the United States at the moment when Freedom Summer where all these white college students head to Mississippi to register voters and they are just in the way. 
they're taking up space, they're taking leadership positions. These 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 black often um, um, uh, uh, agrarian workers weren't allowed to develop their own capacity, their own voice, because these these well-meaning white college students were just so in the way. Um, and I mean, I think that that was an important lesson in the movement. I think that was an enormously important lesson to all those students that had that experience in Mississippi. And it changed their lives, learning about why you need to step back and make space um, for people who've been denied leadership and agency mm -hmm. and voice that, you know, that facilitating that you know, is what it, what, you know, this real authentic allyship, you know, can often look like. I love that. The white savior complex is so complicated and complex, right? Because it's a couple things. Um, one, we don't want them to put the people they're saving into this victim mortality or this, you know, you don't want to be um, paid, you know, you, yeah, you want them, you want to believe, I need you to believe that the group that you're um, saving, quote unquote, has their own agency and are completely able, right? So just not having this kind of victim mentality, I think is important. Um, but I also think why it's so complicated is that there are benefits that we get from white saviors, right? I mean, so we need them, <laughs> maybe redirect or whatever, um, but we need, I mean, we don't want to take away some of the benefits that they're willing to do. And you have this whole um, intent impact thing. So how can I just change the intention a little bit so that it, it's impacting and landing in the right way? So I don't want to scare away white, quote unquote, white saviors, because there are benefits and, and they they do have things that that can, that they offer to people that, that they do very well. Like even when we're thinking about in the movies, um, when we're thinking about the saviors, how someone benefited, right? But there also is harm done and we can address that. How can we have the benefits without the harm? And just really thinking through that. Also, they get this feeling of, you know, they feel great, right? And I don't want to squash that feeling. I want you to feel great. I just want you to know that you can do it in another way because we do want people to have this good feeling from helping others. So it's very complicated. You want to do it and you want to work with people in a way so that they're not seeing others as victims and they are um, actually still able to assist in ways that we want and need them to assist. But, you know, so my hashtag for this is hashtag drop the cape, right? We need you, uh, you know, take the cape off. You can fold that up, put it away. You know, you can put it back on when you when you at home and you're feeling good and you want to look in the mirror and see the cape. Fine. I want you to have that feeling. I don't want that feeling to cause any harm. Yeah, you know, when I was thinking about, um, you know, the, the the kinds of examples that you know I might want to draw on in this conversation, um, based on things that have happened on campus, there's this one thing that was, I think about this all the time. So, um, black and brown students uh, had been protesting on campus. And, and it was such an interesting moment. They were doing things in such a smart way. And I think a lot of it had to do with this um, African-American graduate student who was here at the time and he was working with people actively on protest history and on strategies and how do you think about this? So um, on one side had been um, black and brown students and on the other side were um, 
uh, Ann Arbor police uh, out in a show of force. And white students um, stepped in between these two, locked mm -hmm. arms. Mm -hmm. And I thought, you know, in, in a moment that said, we're white, we're young white college students. These cops are not gonna harm us. They might harm mm -hmm. the black and brown people standing behind us. And so they literally locked arms and kind of put themselves in between what did at that moment seem like two contending forces in some tension with each other. I mean, I don't mm -hmm. want to overstate, but, yeah. you know, I mean, when you're thinking about, you know, how do you deescalate that kind of situation? I thought that, that this was, it seemed to me a heroic thing to do, but heroic in a really well-informed way. I mean, they knew yes. exactly what they were doing and why they were doing it. And I, again, I just, I noodle with this a lot about, you know, what this says about um, contemporary forms of protest, how smart a lot of young people at a place like the University of Michigan have gotten in yeah. thinking through this kind of complexity. And I have to say, I was really, I mean, I was scared out of my mind, but um, because I didn't want any harm to come to anybody, mm -hmm. but deeply impressed yes. at this. And it has just resonated with me kind of years later, I still think about it. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, that, that's a kind of white, white say, I mean, I think in the way, right, Deborah, that you have in mind, I mean, they, they weren't really wearing capes. That's literally a, a physical no. example of yeah. using your privilege. In, in the right way. And I, I, I love that. Thank you for that example. Okay, so big question. What do you think it would take to get a nation of people who are true allies? Well, I, I think it's going to take a lot, right? But and a lot of people and a lot of intention and a lot of planning um, to Angela's point and a lot of going, going back to the drawing board over and over, uh, a lot of education, equipping people but I think where it starts is with the, A, the intention to do it, and then to sit in the discomfort. Like, it's so uncomfortable, right? And we, we're not even programmed to have these conversations. And to say we're going to have these conversations where we fundamentally disagree on something, and how can we move forward towards building a community? And so the more you kind of, connect across difference and you see commonalities and you see people as humans and you see people, you know, I think that's what's going to do it. Um, but, you know, being able to know this is uncomfortable. I'm an inviting, I'm inviting this uncomfort and dealing with emotions is what we don't do. Uh, and so uh, allowing emotion, what, what do you do when you anticipating emotion? Um, and then what do you do when it comes? Is it then unprofessional? Is it, I can't deal with this? Are we going to walk out? I think it starts with thinking about how us as social activists ourselves as well, going to handle and deal with our own emotions, our own so um, sore spots. When Van, Van Jones came here, he said, we have these sore spots and blind spots. And we have these privileges where we're one up or one down because we're all, you know, so many different things. And in, in some cases, I have, I'm one up. In some cases, I'm one down. But um, how am I going to embrace these emotions, my own, in my own source spots, and have my community to do that? 
and then get out there and do the work and bring the other people in. When, when even though I'm dealing with so much hurt, I'm still trying to educate you on your flat out ignorance, right? But like saying, okay, this is what I'm going to do. This is what I'm going to do. You just got to be intentional, dealing with your emotions and having the conversations that will be uncomfortable. It's a lot of history, like Angela said, that history does not go away. That history is very painful. Um, and, it, you know, most marginalized or well, all marginalized communities have their own history as well. And I don't know the history of others. Um, how can I educate, equip, and empower myself and others to move forward? Uh, it's not an easy thing, but it's, you know, it's a simple thing to make the intention to do it. Yeah, I think I would add to that something about I don't know, a kind of enlightened self-interest. Um, you know, so a, a recognition that for Black and Brown people, for minoritized people, um, for, for people on the margins, I mean, this is going to look different, right, um, than, than it might for, you know, um, other kinds of people. But, you know, I just some sort of sense that we're, we're kind of in it together, ultimately, you know, mm-hmm. that, we want, that, that we want a better society for everybody, you know, including for ourselves, you know, mm-hmm. that we, we kind of want to be free of, you know, the, the kinds of toxic effects of racism on everybody, right, on the way that society is structured, on outcomes from something like a pandemic or, um, or giving birth, right, that, that, it's, that it's far more dangerous for Black women in the United yeah. States to give birth than it is, you know, um, for, for other people in a lot of other countries. Um, you know, that, that what we've created is something that um, is, is not good really for anybody, you know? And so this question, you know, that, that a lot of activists ask about freedom, right? So how are we gonna get free? You know, it seems to me to be the question that we should have a lot of other people asking, you know, how do we free ourselves from the toxic effects of racism? Why are we so unwell? Why do we have spikes of anxiety and mental illness? Um, why are Americans so afraid? Yeah. I mean, why is fear this thing that can move electoral majorities? I mean, kind of what's going on with us? Um, I think society-wide that, you know, that these are really important questions to be asking, especially in light of um, climate change and what might be, you know, in, in, in our future, um, you know, and that's not a future that's all that far out, you know? So I think, you know, one of the great things about being in a place like the University of Michigan, right, is being around people asking these kinds of questions, um, asking them from the margins, asking them from the center, thinking about policy, initiatives, thinking about history, thinking about why the humanities and the arts matter and these kinds of questions, thinking about healing, you know, and I think in yeah. all kinds of ways, thinking about, you know, this, this question of freedom, you know, and how we get there. So, I mean, I think it's huge. I mean, I think that, that you know, that you can move from allyship and anti-racism to fundamental questions about freedom and humanity and that we should be making those kinds of connections. So we should definitely talk in particular ways about minoritized people mm-hmm. and the people who suffer, you know, because of these kinds of systems that are deeply unfair, that are oppressive, 
but that this should be a larger question involving all of us simultaneously. So I know that there's, there's vast resources out there. Um, people are always asking what, what are some resources we can look into? And, you know, even just a Google search will give you hundreds of thousands of, of lines there. So just wondering, are there any resources that you can personally recommend that you think are effective for anyone who is trying to be an ally to a group that they're not a part of? So I'm not trying to be cute by this response, but I want to say that one of my um, one of my great resources, you know, on this campus um, and just personally, is in fact Deborah Willis. Uh, so. I think she should really, you know, kind of run with this question, but I'm excited where she sits institutionally, um, the kinds of things that she's been committed to, her commitment to education that, that, that squarely in this, you know, this DEI world, social justice, allyship, you know, has just been remarkable to watch, you know, her, her evolution over the years. So I think you should definitely do the resource answer. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Angela. I, you know, I'll have to, I'll have to dish it back. I'll, I'll have to say one thing about Angela. I um, was, I was a graduate student here as well, right? So I was one of the students on the line, et cetera, um, and then moved on to staff. And all throughout my time, Angela said how she was associate dean in Allison A. At every protest, Angela was there. <laughs> it was like, and it wasn't many administrators. And she was at everyone. I mean, I just remember that so vividly. And I know how difficult it is to be on, you know, in administration and also an ally. For, I mean, you're kind of stuck in this hard place sometimes. The students don't believe you. Administration don't believe you. You can't do anything right. You know, so I really appreciate that. Uh, I have so many role models um, here at University of Michigan. But I would say there are so many resources. I mean, some of them we know, like how to be an anti-racist, white fragility. By, and I also really like this new book, The Sum of Us. Um, just thinking about Angela, what you're saying about history is so important. Like we we really need to start there and kind of understanding that. So I would add that book. And just thinking, um, there are two quotes that I really think about when I'm thinking about allyship and. Um, and just like how to support this kind of anti-racist um, ideology. And one of them is by Dr. Martin Luther King, who says injustice everywhere is a threat to justice. Any, I mean, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. And if we really think about that, like how, like you said, um, Angela, Americans are, what are we so afraid of? Like we're just so afraid, like everybody's afraid something is going to be taken from them. Even black and brown people get into these kind of oppression Olympics as well, right? So like, just thinking about that, I say in my mind all the time, um, injustice anywhere really is a, is a threat to justice for all of us and we all suffer. And if people really think about that. But another one is Lilla Watson who said, if you have come here to help me, you're wasting your time. If you have come here because my liberation is bound, because your liberation is bound up with mine, then let's work together. And so I think about that as well. Like, how can I think about, that's just so deep, um, when I'm trying to be an ally and when I need people to join me um, as an ally, just calling on those two quotes 
Um, and, you know, just, I think it starts with intention and education and community is so important because there will be accountability and community. Debbie, Angela, this has been a super energizing conversation for me and I, I can't thank you enough. I know it'll be just as, if not more energizing for our listeners. So, so thank you so much. Thank you. Thank this you. Was a really great conversation. Thank you to our guests, Professor Angela Dillard and Dr. Deborah Willis, and to our listeners for tuning in. University of Michigan alumni are making a difference all over the world, and we want to continue telling their stories. Are you a member of the Alumni Association? If you haven't already, we invite you to join. Visit the website to stay connected, alumni.umich.edu. Also, don't forget to give this podcast a rating or review and hit the subscribe button so you don't miss the next episode. Until next time, go blue.